Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father, and thank you so much for these lessons as of late that have been focusing our attention on things that really matter, things that matter so much that the God of this world, Satan, our great adversary, attacks us in those areas without rest, namely family, that is, as of late. We are so grateful for truth on the subject and for preparation in order that we might persevere and bring glory to you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make even an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification, Part 28. Um, again, we are still on that side note of family. And I've loved it, personally. I think it's a, it's a timely thing, obviously, given this time of year, given all the focus, the additional focus, maybe on families, uh, both household families and uh, church families and what have you because of the holidays, starting even with Thanksgiving, <clears throat> and just being grateful for such things. The Spirit gave us some extra insight into a very familiar passage for most of you. Go to 2 Timothy 3.6. I want to go through that one last time. 2 Timothy 3.6. <clears throat> it's one of the ways that Satan uh, fundamentally makes his way into our families and if you're angry and you get a little bit, you know, righteously indignant, good. You should be. Because it's just like a serpent to do this thing, to come into a family. It's one thing to attack you head on, head, head to head, you know, like, quote unquote, mano a mano. You know, you want to go toe to toe, let's go. But it's another thing to go after the weak people in your family. It's almost like a mob-like type uh, approach, which is grotesque and pathetic. Second uh, Timothy 3.6, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Now there's a whole scene there, obviously we've looked at the context in the past, but Ike Malotizzo up here on the board forms the translated English word captivate from strongs it means to take captive, and it has a military connotation, of course, in war, to subdue, to ensnare, you even have that sort of leading away in shackles type thing. There's a definite bit of scorn, though, that I had intimated with you on Sunday I hadn't seen before. Um, I had a different sort of coloring to this passage. Um, but when I went into the original language on this second word, uh, gunai karion, in the Greek, which translates weak women, I noted a bit of scorn. So Paul was sort of skinning two sides, or speaking to two sides of the coin here. Strong's refers to that word, to a woman, with all a woman's weakness, a poor weak woman. So um, even though it's translated weak women, the principle applies to anyone that's, you know, minus the Word of God, minus the strength of the power of the Word of God as they abide or, or reside in the sphere of sin. Um, and that takes us typically to something as heinous as overwhelming emotionalism. Uh, and that is certainly attributed at least to uh, these weak women. But we can all relate. So a poor, weak woman, a silly woman used contemptuously in 2 Timothy 3.6, which is the verse that we're in. And contemptuously means with a bit of scorn. So it's not just a, you know, poor me, oh my type, type woman. That's not what Paul's saying. Uh, I'm sure he has a certain sadness for them, just like all of us should, for people that are in a state of weakness. Even when they're sinning, that's when we need to pray for them the most. That's when, when you really think about it, they need most of our attention at that point. So uh, he's not 
minus that, of course, Paul's love is not flown out the window. He's just saying there's a certain um, scorn there. There's a certain responsibility there uh, that these women with their own individual free wills, uh, they've ended up in the place where they're at. And that's all he's really getting at. So in other words, these are not merely byproducts of outward evil infiltrating these so-called weak women. They are results of inward sin as well. I was thinking about this way. Sin has a tendency to collaborate outward with inward and vice versa. In other words, you might get pressure from without and then the sin from within sort of collaborates (laughs) to create a, a bonfire type effect. Uh, where the individual, more, more than, or more than one individual, might be led away in shackles, and that's what captivate means. But there's two sides, isn't there? there can, there's always pressure from without. But until a person says, I agree in my own sin, uh, I collaborate, if you would, they don't get dragged away. They're not captivated. Okay? And that's all Paul's saying, is there's a certain place where these people ended up in their own sort of... Um, emotionalism, their emotional state, minus straight thinking, etc., etc. So they were easy prey. And he's saying with a bit of scorn, hey, listen, what do you expect? Essentially, what do you expect? Uh, You're weighed down with sins. Furthermore, as the Spirit's been reminding us lately on the topic of responsibility for self, said sin, again, is the result of free will decision-making by both parties now, what the Bible often speaks to is this, and we're going to talk a bit about this this evening, the consequences of sin. Now, this is different than any guilt that was sort of tended to at the cross. These are the consequences of sin. Remember, we're moving from the gospel to sanctification, from the gospel, from, uh, from faith to faith. We're talking about, what about after salvation? Yes, the gospel is the reality that we live in, But what about after salvation? We still sin, right? Even though the sin has been paid for. So positionally we're all set, etc., etc. But what about sin in time? What about sin in time? Do we live in guilt? No, that's Romans 8.1. We do not live in guilt. But we do suffer what? Consequences of sin. And God lets that happen for a reason, for a teaching tool, for multitude of reasons to help us grow up, etc., etc. So there are consequences of sin, and this is more akin to a study on sanctification or experiential sanctification. What do we have to deal with regarding the presence of sin in our lives? So it really has to do with consequences since guilt is really thrown out of the equation or condemnation as a result While every sin for the believer was paid for on the cross, the consequences of sin, experientially realized in time, remain, sometimes for a lifetime on earth. In other words, there are certain sins that there are consequences to. For example, if you get into a 2,000-pound vehicle under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and you injure someone or even kill them, while your sin is forgiven, it's not going to affect your salvation, and maybe even those whose lives you severely upset or have forgiven you, there's a certain consequence to your actions that you will have to live with. Is that fair? Of course. There are consequences to sin in time. It's not going to take you to hell if you're already saved, but... There are certain consequences. Some people, you know, more theologically, we call that deserved suffering as opposed to, say, undeserved suffering. Uh, sin that you made a decision about, evil that you acted on, um, that caused and had a certain ripple effect in life. Those are what we might call the consequences of sin. Such is the value of a hard lesson like that one. It's a lesson that sticks with a person, presumably for the rest of their lives. Not guilt, consequence. It's why the word says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That's 
Ephesians 5.18. For the Spirit will certainly not encourage a person to drive intoxicated. There's no way the Holy Spirit would ever encourage an individual to drive intoxicated. Or maybe it's everyone else's favorite, especially we motorcycle and bicycle enthusiasts. Intoxicated. Driving while texting. I cannot tell you. I have a truck now. If I'm not on my motorcycle or my bicycle on the road, I have a truck, which means I can tend to see down. I cannot tell you how many times I see someone with their hand, their, eye, their head is down while they're driving down Route 195 or something like that, and they're looking at their phone. And I'm beside myself. So here's some texts, or here's some uh, stats on intoxication. Five seconds is the minimal amount of attention that a driver who texts takes away from the road. At 55, which hardly anyone drives anymore, at 55 miles an hour, that's a football field. That's a football field. Most of you, if you ran a football field, would puke. I'm just saying, it's a distance. That's a football field at 55. You're doing 75 in texting, you're a football field and a half almost. That's a long way to drive, not looking. And it's pretty obnoxious to think that you're so special that you can endanger other people while doing that thing. Texting makes a crash up to 23 times more likely. Teens who text while driving spend 10% of the time outside their lane. 10%. Half the time you can't tell. It used to be that you, know, you could say, oh, that person's drunk. Because they're like, whoa, whoa. And you're like, oh, I'm great. I'm behind a drunk. Now you can't tell. Most of the time, I would argue, it's texting. And that's scary if you're on a motorcycle, by the way, and you're driving for a football field and a half, and you don't see a motorcycle there. 97% of teens agree that texting while driving is dangerous, yet 43% do it anyway. Well, that's pretty obnoxious. But that's not the point. I'm not here to chastise anybody for being an idiot. One more stat for you, since this seems to be the week of stats. I don't know. Maybe you guys are in a mathematical mood. don't know. But stats have a way to... to what, not let you off the hook, don't they? Stats have a way of speaking. It's getting worse, by the way. 19% of drivers of all ages admit to surfing the web. How do you even do that? How do you surf the web while driving? Now, look. If texting is that bad, how bad is surfing the web? It's so new they don't have stats for it yet. But surfing the web while driving is, I don't, I don't even understand the level of selfishness that goes into that because you're endangering other people. And the sad thing is, that's a sin. Because, and then the, the sadder thing is, is that if it ever catches up with you, God forbid, it catches up with any of us, and something happens, and that sin changes someone else's life irreparably, and you are responsible for another person's death, I lost a niece, Anna, 19, about a decade ago before Thanksgiving because of drunk driving, coming back from uh, Harlem where she was doing good, helping out inner city kids after high school, and some bozo decides to drink, she's dead. So God forbid that happens to even one more person. And I'm not condemning them because we all screw up. But that's not the point. There are some sins that have consequences that go on. The driver that was driving the car drunk is still alive. And he had to do some jail time. And matter of fact, he was very good friends with her. 
So there's no getting around the fact that certain sins, in other words, have lifelong consequences. Again, the principle up here on the board. While every sin for the believer was paid for on the cross, the consequences of sin experientially realized in time remain sometimes for a lifetime on earth. Now, something like reckless driving is only one of many things that have lifelong repercussions. Consider pregnancy out of wedlock, physical and or sexual abuses, adultery, murder, etc., etc. There are certain sins that have lifelong repercussions. Now, granted, those are all more extreme cases of sins that certainly have long-lived consequences. Maybe for contrast, we might consider, you know, like a, a little white lie. A little white lie that sort of goes puff, you know, shortly after it's delivered. You know, like when your wife or girlfriend says, does my butt look bigger than normal in these jeans? And it does, and you lie and say, nope. Technically, that's a lie. And lying is a sin. Are you going to lose sleep over that? Likely not. Unless, unless, unless she finds a three-way mirror and realizes that you lied to her and then comes to find you. That might be another consequence. But you get the point. Every sin, to some degree, has consequences. And the reality is that while we're off the hook, positionally, the consequences of sin uh, remain in our lives, to some degree. So while every sin for the believer was paid for on the cross, the consequences of sin experientially realized in time remain sometimes for a lifetime on earth. Now, as a balance statement, I don't want people to get all warped. Too late, right? Romans 6.2, part B. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Sin reminds us of death's presence. 1 Corinthians 15.56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. What the law revealed, sin, Christ conquered in his death. So we are alive in Christ, even though we sin and suffer consequences. So I don't want you to be lopsided. I want you to get all you know, guilty and concerned about your salvation because you sin after salvation. There's no sin that's going to take you back to the domain of sin, back to the sovereignty of sin. We are alive in Christ, even though we sin and suffer consequences. This is why Paul concedes the consequences as a result. Remember what started this? It was the weak women. Captivate weak women. And there was a reason why Paul had a bit of scorn. And it was almost to say, well, what do you expect? You're weak because you choose to keep on sinning. And then it doesn't take much for someone to come from without and drag you away in shackles. Well, what do you expect? So just remember where we're at. This is why Paul concedes the consequences as a result of the presence of sin in our lives, but also reminds us that we are not dead to sin the way we used to be. We are new creatures who, because of the presence of sin in our mortal bodies, still make decisions against the will of God. That means we're not filled. We are disobedient. That's what he's been teaching us about, even the filling of the Spirit, the controlling of the Spirit. You're not filled when you make a decision against God. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Which is essentially the same thing as saying, Be filled with the Spirit. Well, if you're disobedient to that word, it's hardly richly dwelling in you in that moment. You've sort of done the la-la-la mode of thinking. I'm just going to, come on, it's my best friend. I just got to text this one last time. Hold on. 
go to a football field and a half. Okay, okay, God forgive me. Oh, I guess it wasn't my time. <laughs> I'm glad you're not laughing. In a sense, as Paul intimates later on in Romans 7, we suffer the consequences of the will of our flesh, which is to sin, of course. Go to Romans 6, 8. Romans 6, 8. So that's all the Spirit's saying here. He's saying, listen, stop pointing the fingers. Stop doing the me, oh, my routine. Start taking responsibility for yourself. There are consequences. Heck, I learned that as a kid. My mom used to teach me that before either one of us were really deep in the Word of God. Say, Eddie, you know anything you want, as long as you're willing to pay the consequences, good or bad. It's a good lesson. Because there's consequences, good or bad, to every action that you take. And that's what the Spirit's saying that the only way to get any form of deliverance after salvation, after you've sinned maybe even, is to take responsibility for yourself. It's the people who don't, who never grow. It's the people always blaming someone in their past. You're the reason I'm this way. But you're 50. But, but, But you're the reason. No, you're the reason you're that way. And I'm not saying there are consequences of someone else sinning against you. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what the Spirit's saying. But at some point, it comes down to you. There's always going to be sin against you from without. Amen? What you do with it, do you compound it? Do you let yourself get run down with sin and sin and more sin and sin and more sin, because it is a sin to blame somebody else for your sin, by the way. And then you're in an emotional basket case like these weak women, and all he does is go, shackle, shackle, let's walk this one away. This one's easy as pie. Why? Because they're too busy blaming everyone else for their own mistakes. And then that person doesn't go anywhere. And that's all the Spirit's saying. It's just, listen, folks, let's just be real. And you know how he is. He uses certain things to wake you up. Romans 6, 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. That would be the antithesis of being obedient to God or being filled with the Spirit. That's the antithesis right there. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. That's what it means not to be filled. You're obeying another master. And that's why Paul says in the very next verse, take your marching orders from me, from God. That's how you're filled. And do not go on presenting, remember peristemi, presenting, take your marching orders, another military type command. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Yeah. Otherwise, you might end up in a situation where you're racked with sin and you become, male or female, a weak woman. And you're easy prey. And that's what the Spirit's trying to get you out of. He's... You're trying to get you out of that dysfunction junction, so to speak. All right, go back to where we began. Go to 2 Timothy 3.6. 2 Timothy 3.6. A lot of you throw way too many pity parties. You've got to grow up. Put the big, big girl panties on. Is that how the ladies say it now? Put your big girl panties on. I say pick up your skirt to men. First of all, you shouldn't be wearing a skirt. But let's have that talk some other time. 
2 Timothy 3.6, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Up here on the board, again, refers to a woman with all women's weakness, a poor, weak woman, a silly woman, used contemptuously. Again, it's not, or Paul's not letting the weak women off the hook. He's not saying just blame those who are coming from without. He's not at all. He's saying you're weak in part because of your own sinning. Of course, they're going to exploit you because they're sleazeballs, but maybe you shouldn't be exploitable. What the Spirit's asking me to teach you is that while the sower of evil may certainly be from without, there's a definite issue from within that cannot be ignored. And for all intents and purposes, as far as we as individuals are concerned, it's the more important lesson. Think about this. The, the, the more, it's not, listen, we all know. You only have to live, what, 38 seconds and you know there's pressure from without. But what about what we have to say? What about our own free will? What about our life? We're never going to control those people on the outside. So what do we have left? We have us, our relationship with Christ, our relationship to the Word of God, whether or not we obey the convicting ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, or not. That's what we have responsibility for. So maybe we ought to focus on those things. Maybe we ought to focus on not ever becoming a weak woman. So evil from without is no excuse just because the Bible makes us aware of the fact that evil exists abundantly outside of our households doesn't mean it's proposing that we make excuses for our own sins. Again, evil from without is no excuse. Just because the Bible makes us aware of the fact that evil exists abundantly outside of our households doesn't mean it's proposing that we make excuses for our own sins, because that in of itself is bondage. That person doesn't grow. You can't grow if you don't first, in humility, take responsibility for your own actions. Last time I checked, you choose to sin. A tempter cannot sin for you. A tempter also does not suffer the same consequences as the sinner, for the sin is different. Think about that. First of all, you choose to sin. A tempter cannot sin for you, so stop blaming everybody else. A tempter also does not suffer the same consequences as the sinner, for the sin is different. So God will deal with those things. God will deal with those things differently. The one who's tempting, which is a sin, and then the one who ends up bearing sin as a result of being tempted. They're two different sinners, and God will deal with them differently. And there's scripture for each side. But as far as we're concerned, right now we're pretending that we're the potential weak women. And what is the Spirit saying? Make sure that you don't become a weak woman. Make sure that you're not so spun up in your own choosing to sin that you're easy prey. Some people, this is where it starts getting comical, and some of you might be able to relate. Some people, especially sophomores, wise morons, will even propose that since the grace of God shines through their suffering, and there is truth in that statement, it's not what I'm teaching right now, though. They will propose that since the grace of God shines through their suffering, in other words, mercy, grace, I'm such an idiot. I've done the same sin a thousand times, but God is so merciful. Here I am! So they even propose that since the grace of God shines through their suffering, that they are somehow, you ready? Supposed to sin so that God's grace may abound all the more. 
In other words, you're his chosen instrument to reveal grace to the world. And it just so happens you kind of like that sin, so to speak. You kind of premeditate it on this premise. In other words, some people will try and justify a lifestyle of sinning as if they are doing God a favor by giving him the opportunity to reveal his grace to the world by delivering them over and over and over again. And they will try to justify that lifestyle as a result. While he may be just doing that for a time, that's a perversion that Paul also dealt swiftly with. Go to Romans 5.20. Romans 5.20. So that person has done nothing more than, again, mostly it's the sophomores, taken good scripture and perverted it. My favorite is, I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm such a knucklehead. No, that's your flesh that makes you a knucklehead. Anything good in you is what you are by the grace of God. So stop taking that weird thing and perverting it. Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? And so Paul's playing a little game with the smarty pants. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Are we going to, make, we're going to do God a favor? We know how much God loves to show off His grace. Well, why don't I just do the world a favor? And I'll be the biggest schmuck on two legs. I'll just destroy everybody in my path. And then I'll prove to the world that God hasn't killed me off yet. So God is merciful. Do you see it? So I'll just keep doing this. And you just keep looking at me. I am what I am by the grace of God. I'll text and drive. I'll just do whatever. I'll drive over people's lawns over there. I'm just being dramatic now. But you know what I mean. Whatever people do. Those are just the things I do, obviously. I don't do that. I have to keep a good standing with the community, remember. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? What's Paul say? Cut it out, basically. Cut it out. Stop being a sophomore. Stop being smarty pants. That's the argument that a kid would give a parent. So what you're saying, technically... What you're saying, I can go out till 9.30 if, what? 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 That's the kind of garbage that adolescents try to pull. And Paul's saying, cut it out. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So here's the appropriate perspective up here on the board. And it's true, grace precedes sanctification. That's where the Spirit's taken us, albeit in a somewhat roundabout way using examples and anecdotes. And, but I like it. I like what he's doing. Especially with family. Grace precedes sanctification. Grace is meant to be attractive to a believer. Delivering a person up to a lifetime of gratitude. When you think of grace, a quote, grace-oriented person lives a life of gratitude. That's what grace means to a grace-oriented person. That's what makes it attractive. That every day you get to be thankful for life. That's a nice way to live, isn't it? To wake up and be grateful? To be alive? That's grace in the practical sense. Not, hmm, how can I put God's grace to the test today? I wonder how much he'll put up with me today before he snuffs me out as the, unto the sin unto death. I wonder how much I can prove to the world how merciful God is with human beings. I wonder how much I can be an instrument of unrighteousness. Maybe I'll just mow a few people down while I'm texting my best friend. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll just roll the dice and then laugh about it afterwards. Listen, this isn't the casino, folks. These are other people's lives you're dealing with. Sin has a ripple effect, does it not? So, it's, it's, look, when you sin, you affect other people. And depending on the consequences of the sin, it could be grave. It could hurt somebody terminally, fatally. So there's nothing really 
to laugh about in that sense. I mean, we're having chuckles over it, but there's really nothing to laugh about on that front. Grace is meant to be attractive to a believer delivering a person up to a lifetime of gratitude. It is not meant to be a crutch for sin, nor an excuse, nor an enabler. We know what the flesh wants to do, but just because we know that for as long as God doesn't you know, take us out, just because we know that, should we be enabled? Should we look at it as our grand enabler for sin? That, oh, well, God's just going to be merciful to me anyways. Is that the right attitude? Is that the love of Christ? Is that the love of God? That is literally the furthest thing from the love of God. So grace cannot be a crutch for sin. And those are sort of diametrically opposed viewpoints up there in the board. Grace is meant to be attractive to a believer, delivering a person up to a lifetime of gratitude. Just rest on that this evening. That's what grace orientation is. That you live a life of gratitude. That you realize that every waking moment is a gift from God. That every moment that you live a saved life ought to spawn untold amounts of gratitude towards God. That's what it means to be grace-oriented. To live a life of gratitude. It's not meant... You want to put yourself in bondage? Play the sophomore game. Grace is not meant to be a crutch for sin, nor an excuse, certainly not an enabler. God never tempts a person so that he can show off his grace. Go to James 1.13. God never tempts a person so that he can show off his grace. It's not what he does. James 1.13. James 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So he's not going to tempt you to sin so that he can somehow show off his grace afterwards. I think there's enough of the other temptations for him to do just fine in that front without you adding to it. Again, the point on the board... Grace is meant to be attractive to a believer, delivering a person up to a lifetime of gratitude. It's not meant to be a crutch for sin, nor an excuse, nor an enabler. One last time, go to 2 Timothy 3.6. All of this is really just to amplify this little old passage that I'm sure many of you have gone to in the past, and you probably focused, let's face it, you probably focused all your attention on the sleazeballs, that went into households, not giving the individuals that were being captivated, or captivated, being taken captured, um, the weak women, not giving them ample study, ample consideration. Well, here we are, 2 Timothy 3.6. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The other principle from Sunday on that was up here on the board. Again, more on no excuses. Regardless of how good, quote, or bad, quote, your past has been, it is never the basis for sin. Your free will is. You are the one that chooses to remain in dysfunction junction. Again, regardless of how good or bad your past has been, it is never the basis for sin. Your free will is. You are the one that chooses to remain in dysfunction junction. Most of us would agree that the very phrase, interestingly enough, dysfunction junction conjures up thoughts 
regarding family issues. Is that fair? Usually when you hear the word dysfunction junction, maybe it's just my messed up family. Everybody's like, well, sometimes. When I hear dysfunction junction, I think of messed up families. And I'm not saying my family was that messed up. We had our problems. For whatever reason, likely the proximity and the familiarity of humans in a single household, families seem to be the petri dish for dysfunction. Now, on Sunday, we noted that the word reveals that Satan often goes after the weakest in our families. He often goes after the weakest in our families. He has no scruples. It's not like he's going to, you know fight fairs, quote-unquote. In our homes, he might do it through schools and hobbies, recreation, media, etc., other things and whatever that comes through the television or the internet or, you know, like all those stats I gave you on internet and mobile devices and that kind of garbage. Hence the required vigilance of parents. In our churches, we face similar pressures from without. Hence the required vigilance of leadership such as the one speaking to you right now. For example, every single one of you, I was thinking about this, and I literally, in my brain, went around the church. For example, every single one of you has been attacked. People are like, is that true? Yes, it's true. Every single one of you, sometimes by name. Sometimes by name. And you've never known about it, but I have. DJ's knocking, going, yep, because he knows some of those names. And he also knows that we protected you. So it's true. Every single one of you has been attacked just by being a member of this church. Some of you by name, and you've not even known about it, but I certainly have. All Satan wants to do is get people to fight each other in their moments of weakness, and ultimately fracture the unity of the faith. That's all he wants to do. He just wants to get people in a church like this to turn on each other and then leave. And I'm not going to lie, he's been successful in the past. Why? Because the weak people didn't have the backbone to stick it out. So they left. If they only knew, that's the saddest thing, if they only knew. But that's the way it goes. And Satan won those battles, you see. He divided up family. This is family. And he won those battles. And he divided up family. And that's how I see it. And I've had to watch it from this vantage point. And it's awful, and it's heartbreaking. But Satan is, quote, hell-bent on doing that very thing. And it's amazing how many... I mean, there's scripture on that. Stop arguing over stupid things like genealogy. Stop arguing over pettiness. Stop arguing over your personality problems. Stop it. Stop calling up your friends and... Stop it. Stop doing that thing. Because Satan's winning. He's won many times over in this congregation already, just like he has in our own families. I mean, how many families, let's face it, especially ones that are following Christ, how many families where one or more people in the family structure is following Christ, how many of those families are pristine There's usually what? Everybody goes to Thanksgiving. Oh, watch out for the eggshells. Watch out for the eggshells. Watch out for the eggshells. Can't say this. This one's doing this. Can't say that. This one's doing this. Can't say this. They're going to blow up. Why is everybody alive? It's like, it's true. It's true. And it's the way it is. To whatever degree possible, heads of the household ought to cut such things off at the pass. And that starts with us, men. 
Men are assigned this post to do this. To be diligent and protect. Same thing in a family. Men are assigned that post to be diligent and to protect. So if they're wearing a skirt, we have a problem. If the, if the wife runs the household, if the wife calls all the shots, we might have a little problem here. If the wife's the one who takes the kids to church, if the wife's the one who decides what church to go to, we might have a small problem. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those are the little things that Satan will exploit. In those situations, the weak women are actually the men. they got skirts on anyways, why not, right? It's grotesque, but like I've taught for years now, like I'm convinced of, I blame the men. I blame the very high percentage of the problems in this world on the lackluster performance of men. We don't have warriors. We have little girls for men. I can't speak for other countries, but that's what I see. Hate to be a downer. Merry Christmas! <laughs> we, need war- uh, we need warriors. We need... I'm not saying you have to be mob all man, you know, where you're you know, leather-necked and lassoing things. I'm saying we need, like... <laughs> just because, you know... We need real men. We need Christ-like men. Not whatever's out there, which is pathetic. So, to whatever degree possible, heads of the household ought to cut such things off at the pass. And it does take work, folks. Oops. Satan will use the weakest individuals in the family to try and blow up an entire family. That's what he does. He'll go after the weakest. Unfortunately, Sometimes the weakest is the head of the household. And that's very easy to blow up. So that's what the Spirit's trying to do. He's trying to strengthen our families, folks. Saying, don't be the weak women, regardless of gender. There's enough attacks from without. And stop blaming everybody else for your sins. Because you're the one who chooses to sin. With all of this talk about family, we asked ourselves the fundamental question up here on the board. Uh, Okay, here it is. Let's see. Right here. Family, what is it to you? What is it to God? Go to Ephesians 3.14. Ephesians 3.14. Family. So he has us contemplating. what What is family to you? What is it to God? Are they the same? I mean, who invented family? Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father in... Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Up here on the board, God is the author of family. Family is a gift. May we reject society's attempt to pervert his definition of it. Family isn't two homosexual men or two homosexual women with babies adopted from China. That's not God's definition of a family. God is the author of family. Man doesn't have the right to update the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Word, same yesterday, today, and forever. We don't have the right to update the Bible. Deuteronomy 4.2, do not add or subtract to the Word of God. We don't have the right to update the Bible. So whether or not all these weak women, men and women, who are weighed down with sin, 
in emotionalism believe it's okay to have another version of family, it doesn't matter to God. And somebody's got to stand up for God. And that's us. And if you don't have the backbone for it, like so many that have gone through these doors don't, then leave. But this is what it's about. We have to have backbone, folks. Anybody think that the end times aren't around the corner in some way? Oh, God, all the revelation people are like, all of you doing this thing already? Like little babies. Ready! We might, I'm sorry, we might be here another hundred years. Who knows? I don't know. Who knows? It's not supposed to be our focus anyways. The point is, listen, God is the author of family. Family's a gift. May we reject society's attempt to pervert his definition of it. James 1.17. Got a nice little uh, Christmas card from a nice family. They don't even have kids. Them and their dogs. And James 1.17 was on there. I loved, I loved it. I'm like, hey, look at that. Every good thing given and every, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. That's right. Family is a gift. The point here is that family is God's domain. Think about that. Family is God's domain, not Satan's. I don't know of any scripture that speaks of angelic families. Certainly not any of which Satan is a part of. I mean, there's angelic hosts, plural. I don't know of any talk of family. Even if Satan were a part of a family, he'd likely despise it, since God would be the author of it. (laughs) But as far as we are concerned, up here on the board, God is the author of family. Family is a gift. May we reject society's attempt to pervert his definition of it. May I encourage each of you that, and I'm almost out of time, I can't believe it. May I encourage each of you that if you have a family, and you do if you are a believer, never forget that. There's nobody that's hearing my voice right now, if they're a believer, that is alone. Nobody. If you have a family, and you do, if you're a believer, then embrace it. And if your worldly family is still spinning in dysfunction junction, and they are utterly unbearable for a whole host of reasons, then pray for them. And keep your distance if you must. Remembering the words of our Savior, the head of our church family, Matthew 10, 35 and 36. Jesus said, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household, or his household. Yeah, that's, those are the words of Jesus. So if you have to separate for your own the health of your own soul then so be it so the spirit's not saying that either go cast your pearls before swine he's not saying that if you have members of this church family whose worldly family is a train wreck please remember them during the holidays Do as some have done in the past and invite them along with you. And don't hesitate either. Holidays can be an incredibly trying time for many believers who have tenuous relationships with their worldly families. Oftentimes, this is because of their spirituality even, their relationship with Christ. It's the only reason. Nobody will come out and say it. But because they think differently, because they believe truth, the rest of the family, I don't know, antagonizes them? 
So think about those people from this family this season. Not everybody has a sound family. Not everybody has a semi-functional family. If you're fortunate enough to have a, quote, sane, well, then maybe that's a stretch. You know what I mean, though. A, quote, sane, worldly family during the holidays. Consider the Holy Scriptures. Hold your thumb. Go to Philippians 2.1. Consider the Holy Scriptures. Philippians 2.1. Philippians 2.1. So if you have a, you know, a decent enough family, one that's tolerable, maybe, I mean, if you're lucky enough, you're all positive towards Christ. If you have something like that, and someone in this family has nothing, then consider them this Christmas. Philippians 2.1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So listen to what the Spirit just said from this pulpit. I have to close now. Consider that. Consider the people in this local assembly even who don't have possibly what you have. Who, when everybody scurries to their own way, There's a few left without anywhere to turn. Well, are they not family? Are they not our family? Would we leave our own worldly family, you know, the ones that are completely antagonistic to us about the the cornbread being undercooked? You know, those ones who we'll, we'll never miss Christmas Eve with, we'll never miss Christmas Day with but we'll leave the people we truly care about, the ones we're going to spend all of eternity with, behind? I don't know what to say about that. I'm just as guilty as the next person. But I know this, that God's the author of family. And this is family. And this is a gift. And I think sometimes we take it for granted, frankly. I think we take it for granted. I think there's a lot we can learn even the way we started off class with the announcements. You got who? Five people, the average age is probably about 70. If it wasn't for Don, it'd be in the 70s. They're the ones who responded to the family. Why is that? Why do all the old folks do it? I don't know. That's just, those are the kind of things that the Spirit's saying. You know, if that's convicting to you, good, I guess. Think about it. But that's what He wants me to leave you with, family again, and remember those um, that are quote less fortunate than you during the holiday seasons. And remember that when everyone else scurries away, there are some that don't have anywhere to go. And shame on us as a family. We wouldn't leave our own cockamamie, cockeyed family members who torture us, who want nothing to do with Christ, behind. But somehow we leave our family, our heavenly family, behind. How does that work? I don't know, shame on us, right? Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. 
We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you. The fullness of